will be in Ezekiel chapter 2 for this evening. Let us read Ezekiel 2, only 10 verses, and then we'll pray that God's blessing would be upon us. So Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will, I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it, was right, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we uh, hear the words that your uh, man of God has just spoken in prayer to you. And Lord, we repeat them as well. Lord, we see the wickedness before us in our nation. And Lord, we tremble. But Lord, as we will see tonight, help us to see that uh, prophets such as Ezekiel and prophets that continue to exist uh, in, in your church through the preachers and through the evangelists and through those engaged in confronting uh, falsehood with truth, Lord, let them be encouraged tonight. And Lord, as we who hear the word, who understand the word, who are committed to the word, help us to do the word. Lord, we ask that you would please be with us now. And we ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Last week, uh, we tried to make heads or tails of the vision of Ezekiel 1. To summarize, we saw this glorious vision of the Lord arrayed with his angelic army. And we saw that God was seated upon his chariot, ready for war. And the main thing to take away from this vision is that God is ready for war and he is revealing his presence to strike fear into the hearts of the exiles, just as the presence of a king and his army would strike fear in the heart of his enemies. And like much of ancient warfare, God sends a messenger to his enemies to warn of, his, of their coming destruction. For tonight, what we will see in this passage is God commissioning Ezekiel to be his prophet. We're seeing the commission of Ezekiel as God's prophet. God is commissioning Ezekiel to proclaim that God is coming for war. We can break down Ezekiel's commission into four parts or four main headings. We'll see uh, Ezekiel's commission, we'll see his call, our first point, the congregation, 
the second point. The third point, the consultation. And the fourth point, the content. So then the call, the congregation, the consultation, and the content of Ezekiel's commission. I like to use alliteration, as you see. With each of these points, I hope that we can delve further into Ezekiel's unique ministry as God's commission prophet. So let's begin. The call, verses 1 of 2 of chapter 2. For our first point for the evening, I want us to consider Ezekiel's call as a prophet. In the verse prior to chapter 2, Ezekiel beholds the vision of the Lord, as we saw last week, and falls in worship and reverence. From this posture of worship, Ezekiel hears the voice of one speaking, as the text says. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, very first that we read, Yahweh directly commands Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. Just with this command, we should note the kindness that the, that the Lord is displaying to Ezekiel. Even in light of God's terror that was before Ezekiel in this vision, this terror of war, God still calls him to stand before him. Ezekiel's response to grovel and prostrate himself before Yahweh was right and natural. But Yahweh still commanded Ezekiel to stand before him. And this is an incredibly gracious act. You see, to stand before God is an act of confidence. To stand before God is an act of security. So when God calls Ezekiel to stand, God is assuaging Ezekiel's fear and assuring him that he will not be a threat to Ezekiel. God is calling Ezekiel to be his prophet. So God first establishes a communion and security with Ezekiel. What we see then is God creating a fellowship with Ezekiel and then enlisting him for his service. Moreover, this is the expected pattern for one of God's prophets. As those who know of God's law in Deuteronomy 18, we see Moses explain that God would raise up a prophet that was like Moses himself. Uh, This is Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Mosaic prophet would speak on behalf of God. Because the people of Israel could not bear to stand before the Lord in in His presence, lest they die. And we also see Ezekiel take on this fellowship to a degree that Moses possessed with Yahweh. In Exodus 33, if you remember uh, this chapter, we see that Yahweh would speak to Moses face to face. And this is key. As a man speaks to his friend. This was a communion of friendship, a fellowship of friendship that Ezekiel was patterning after Moses' relation with Yahweh. Ezekiel stands before God in his fiery presence just as Moses spoke with God out of the midst of the fire at Sinai. So then God's command to Ezekiel is a command to commune with him as friend. And as we'll see in just a moment, Ezekiel will have plenty of enemies in his audience, and they would be a threat to him. But by God commanding Ezekiel to stand before him, Ezekiel can rest assured that the one arrayed and terrifying glory that was before him would not be against him. But even more astounding is how God will equip Ezekiel for this calling. In verse 2, as God spoke to Ezekiel, 
it says this in verse 2, The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard Him speaking to me. Last week, we saw that the Spirit, or, or the breath as it is, is used in the Hebrew, that the breath of the Lord was in complete control of the vision. The glory cloud, the cherubim, the chariot, they all moved according to the direct influence of the one speaking from the throne through the use of the Spirit. By merely speaking, God's almighty voice, or we could say His breath or Spirit, would effortlessly move the entirety of this battalion and this chariot. As an almighty God who had complete and utter control over his legions, God is an all-powerful, uh, is all-powerful and had absolute control over his angelic host. None could stop him. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, when we read that the Spirit entered Ezekiel and caused him to stand, we should understand this as God calling or enlisting Ezekiel as a soldier to a mission. This is the essential nature of Ezekiel's call as a prophet. So just as the cherubims were enlisted to defend God's holiness against his enemies, Ezekiel was enlisted or called to announce God's holiness to his enemies. And just as God was the ultimate source of the cherubims' might, that God was the ultimate source of this grand glorious vision, God would sustain and empower Ezekiel through his spirit, for the mission that he has called him to do. This is the mission that Ezekiel was on. So then Ezekiel, Ezekiel's call was one marked by, fringe, by the friendship of God. And it was empowered by the Almighty God. But what is this call to? A call is always to something. Why is Ezekiel empowered and encouraged by God for this prophetic call? This brings us to our second point, Ezekiel's congregation, in which we'll spend a little bit more time. The congregation, verses 3 through 4, point number 2, God calls, God's call of Ezekiel is marked by friendship and power because Ezekiel will need it for the people who he will confront with God's announcement of judgment. You see, a prophet always has a congregation. He will always have an audience. In my zeal for uh, alliterating my points, as I so often do, I chose the word congregation for our second point because this point, this point deals with the audience that Ezekiel would be preaching to. But when we typically hear the, the term congregation, we typically think of uh, church or people in the pews, right? But as any pastor would tell you, there is a profound difference between a congregation of sheep and a congregation of goats. Sheep listen, but goats are stubborn. The audience, and to steal a phrase from Pastor Wynn, and I like it so much, Ezekiel was dealing with a regular old goat barn. The audience that Ezekiel was preaching to was a hard-hearted, rebellious people. In fact, it might be more appropriate to call them a synagogue of Satan. In verse 3 of our passage, Yahweh speaks to Ezekiel, and he, Yahweh himself, describes the people of Israel in stark, bleak terms. Here's a slightly augmented translation of verse 3. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I send, to you to the, I send you to the sons of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. 
God utilizes the term son of man when speaking of Ezekiel. And I don't think we should read anything Christological about this phrase, not, not with Ezekiel. I believe what God is doing here is distinguishing Ezekiel from the rest of the people of Israel. Ezekiel is the son of man. These are the sons of Israel. This is an immediate way of showing that Ezekiel has been sanctified to Yahweh and that Ezekiel is even separate from his audience. What God was communicating was that Ezekiel was no longer to be like the rebellious people he was called to preach to. Also, the sons of Israel are described further by the following phrase, nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Rebellion, brothers and sisters, marked the sons of Israel. It was their essential character trait, as we will discuss further. But notice this, that Yahweh calls them also nations of rebels. Nations, plural. This is a little play on language, and I found it interesting, but go with me here. The term for nations is, is from the Hebrew word goyim, which you may be familiar with if you have close Jewish friends or family, as I do. This is language of being an outsider to the covenant community. But God is applying this derogatory term, goyim, nations. He's applying this term to Israel themselves. The idea is basically, basically that Israel had become just like the rest of the nations around them. Cut off from God's presence and marked by rebellion. Another point we can see about this congregation of rebels is how God condemns the entirety of them. Yahweh was not upset with just a particular tribe or a particular generation. He was angered by the entirety of the people and at every generation. In the Old Testament, God usually directs His judgments at the generation that was in its prominence, typically. In a generation, maybe, uh, there's some leeway here, a generation may be marked by those within the ages of 30 and 50. Typically within a Hebrew household, there's three to four generations living at a time, and the most prominent one, think of sin of Achan, uh, the most prominent figure was taken out directly. But we also see that God promises to bring judgment upon the sons of the sons of a sinful generation. Not simply the one single sinful generation, but the sons of a sinful generation. As Deuteronomy 5, 9 states, God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. As he says in Ezekiel 2, verse 3, the main, uh, the, the main generation, they... And their fathers, the prior generation, have transgressed against me to this very day. That is, even to the point of exile. What we are to see is that the exiled audience that Ezekiel is commissioned to speak to is made up of, a, is made up of generations that have despised God and His covenant, even in the midst of their judgment. This is a rebellious house. And in verse 4, we also see that the coming generations, the descendants or sons, are impudent and stubborn as well. From these verses, we see at least three generations of Israelites that are marked by sin, rebellion, and corruption. This is the audience that Ezekiel is going to speak condemnation to. This wasn't a, a flare-up of a, of a particular sin and particular generation. That was, no, nothing like that. This was continued 
and sustained depravity that marked the sons of Israel generation by generation. Notice also that they're called sons of Israel. They're Judahites. Ezekiel's doing something here. Rather, the Lord's doing something here. He's saying it's not merely Judahites. It's all of you. One final note is that rebellion in the biblical model is breaking of God's revealed law. All the generations of Israel in Ezekiel's purview were lawbreakers. They did not keep the stipulations of God's covenant at Sinai. They broke God's old covenant. And this is the reason for why God sends Ezekiel to the Chabar Canal to proclaim an indictment against the rebellious exiles. God clearly explains this in his word. In verse 4, Yahweh explains that he is sending, uh, that he is sending Ezekiel to say this. Say to them, thus says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. That phrase, thus saith the Lord, is what theologians call a prophetic announcement formula. It serves as a, as a literary indicator that the prophet is speaking directly from God as, as the covenant lawkeeper, as the love covenant uh, a lawyer in a certain sense. Personally, I like to think of this phrase, thus says the Lord, as the covenant indictment formula. Typically, whenever a prophet would use this phrase, God is declaring the consequences of Israel's sin, which are the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy and elsewhere throughout the Torah. And so with all this in view, we should see that Ezekiel is being commissioned to proclaim God's word to a cursed rebellious people. To a cursed rebellious people. Brothers, there are many applications that we can take away from this passage. And many of them will be repeated as we go through the book of Ezekiel. But one point is particularly salient. In our day and age, there's much being said, especially in Christian circles, in regard to generational sin or guilt. In our American context, this concept of generational sin has been heightened due to racial unrest and other various tensions placed upon a certain point in our nation's history and cultural memory. Unfortunately, many Christians are confused when it comes to what we are seeing on our news feeds and television streams. We hear calls for justice. Amen. We're hearing calls for repentance. Amen. But oftentimes these are connected with things that we cannot say and give a hearty amen to. And I know that many of you have been working through these issues yourselves. Looking to trusted Christian writers and public theologians. But not all of these voices are unanimous in how we should exactly approach this issue of generational sin. Should we empathize with those fighting for justice and those calling to account generational sin? Should particular Christians repent for sins that their ancestors committed or from sins that they may be complicit in? Or should we stand up to the growing tide of cultural Marxism in our churches and be bold for so-called biblical principles? Is all this talk of social justice or generational repentance or sin just the beginning slide into a social gospel? Unfortunately, it is very easy for Christians to pick a side of the aisle without nuance and information of the issues at hand. 
And the continual volley from both sides quickly devolves into this Christian tribalism that we see today. By this, I mean it's easy for us to think that you are only a true or biblical Christian if you are on my side of the issue. Unfortunately, this mindset often causes more problems in the church, causes more problems rather than actually solving problems or changing hearts in light of what the Bible actually teaches. For tonight, I I can't. I I do not plan to get into any of the theological or historical points that that will come later in our study. We will talk about this issue. But I want us to be aware of this in us, brothers. I want us to be aware of this in us. I want us to be aware not to so naturally think of ourselves as Ezekiel, in our own story. In our sinful pride, we can so closely associate ourselves with the prophet rather than the people. We like to see ourselves as the chosen one by God, the hero in the story. We like to be the prophet to proclaim God's rebuke to a sinful nation. But often we are the ones who need to hear the word of rebuke. Even for those who hold to a biblically-based view on this issue. And I do believe there is a so-called right side to the issue. We nevertheless need to discern where there may be the residue of sin, the residue of sin, of pride, or contempt in why we hold to that issue. Or why do we hold to that side or that position. Just remember, brothers, and thinking about these things, the exiles... The exiles were about to receive further cursing, though they thought they were in good standing with the Lord. They were expecting this temporary curse to be over, since they were the chosen people of God. They thought they could find relief without any real repentance. But that is not what they would receive. They would receive judgment for their presumption and pride. Brothers, may such a foolhardy, and stubborn spirit not be found in us. Rather, let us be encouraged when we need encouragement, but let us be rebuked when we need rebuke. Sanctification and growth in wisdom, brothers, particularly, particularly in contentious issues like this, do not come by our ego being stroke or through self-justification. Godly growth brothers and sisters, godly growth only comes from heeding God's word, even in the nettling details of our own hearts. Unravel the sin, the strands of sin in your hearts, brothers. That's where true Christian growth, true Christian wisdom comes from. Our third point, brothers, verses 5 through 7, the consultation. In light of such a sinful and stubborn people, Ezekiel will be certainly be in need of guidance as he confronts this rebellious congregation. And this is our third point, Ezekiel's consultation from the Lord. As someone called by God to go to such a godless and rebellious people, this commission would certainly be intimidating. So then the Lord continues to speak a word of consultation to Ezekiel in verse 5. The Lord says this, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. 
What God is saying in these verses is that the sign, that the sign that this prophetic message is true is not based on the obedience of the people. Let me repeat that. What God is saying in these verses is that the sign that verified this prophetic message is true is not based on the obedience of the people. Remember that God gives signs, sometimes miraculous or not, to confirm what the prophet is saying is true. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22. I won't read that, but just for your reference. God uses signs to confirm, to verify a prophetic message. By Ezekiel proclaiming, thus says the Lord, the rebellious people would know that a prophet was among them, whether or not they, uh, they heeded the word of God. In saying this word of consultation, the Lord was teaching Ezekiel again that the people were totally corrupt and rebellious to the prophetic word of God. It wouldn't matter how eloquent or exalted the word was. Ezekiel's congregation was so far gone in rebellion that their obedience, their obedience ultimately didn't matter. Ezekiel didn't have to see whether God's word was working or having its effect on the people to know that God's word is true. In fact, I would argue that these verses seem to suggest the opposite. Ezekiel should expect opposition in the mess, to his message and that God, will give, that God will give him, and that this will be a sign in itself. Ezekiel should expect opposition as the sign of God. The Lord encourages Ezekiel in verse 6. He says, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them. Nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. God directly commands Ezekiel to not be afraid of the rebellious people. I believe this is an illusion, actually, that this wording that comes from Deuteronomy and the early portions of Joshua. Before the people of Israel entered into the land of Canaan through Joshua, the Lord encourages them not to be afraid of, quote, them. Meaning the foreign nations living in the promised land at that time. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 17 through 19, Moses encourages the people for their eventual conquest of the land. And he says this at the outset, as they're about to go into the land. Moses gives this word. Deuteronomy 7. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? God says this, you shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. If I'm correct that this is at least an allusion to Deuteronomy, imagine the connections we should see. We have Ezekiel acting in the place of Israel, preparing to charge against the enemies of God with the Almighty God behind him. But we also see, and this also means that the people of Israel have now become like the rest of the nations, as we saw. They've become like Egypt and the Canaanites, who God displaced from the land with mighty signs and wonders. With this and what we, are about, uh, what we saw about his call, we should see Ezekiel as a warrior prepared by his God to proclaim the judgment of God. Ezekiel had the Almighty God before him, telling him not to be afraid. Because this almighty God was going to be with him and empowering him in the mission. 
so the people's jeers and grumbling would not have an effect on Ezekiel. Mere sneers of a rebellious nation would not deter the soldier of the Almighty God. The mention to briars, thorns, and scorpions is just simply a metaphor for the people's contempt of God's prophet and his word. It perfectly captures what the severe social pressure would inflict in Ezekiel's ministry. God commands Ezekiel not to be afraid of their words, nor their looks or their face. Yet despite all the pressure that would confront Ezekiel, God still still commands him in verse 7 to speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. No matter what pressure, persecution, or isolation he experienced, Ezekiel was still commanded to preach God's word. God's consultation to Ezekiel is therefore one of encouragement and fortitude in light of adversity. Let me say that again. God's consultation to Ezekiel is therefore one of encouragement and fortitude in light of adversity, in light of the enemies of God. Brothers, we need to hear this same word of consultation. Now more than ever in my mere lifetime has the church needed more fortitude to proclaim God's more, God's word confidently and with resolution in light of adversity. From a decline of basic morality in our society to heterodox beliefs and practices firmly rooted in evangelical churches, Bible-believing Christians must stand in resolute confidence in the word of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, our day is filled with chaos and confusion, brothers. We all read the news. We all see it pounding before us. And it is so easy for us to hide behind, uh, to hide from the storm, brothers, to wait for the storm to pass along. And it's only then that we are bold enough to speak the truth. But the Scriptures teach us to be bold no matter what may come. But what does it mean to be bold, biblically speaking? What does it mean to be bold? Brothers, if you're anything like me, sometimes it's hard to differentiate between boldness and brashness. Character flaw, my wife will tell you. It's hard to differentiate between boldness and brashness. When I hear other preachers or theologians that I like to listen to, you know, when I hear them standing out against the issues of the day, I tend to generally agree with their points, even if I want some more to be more nuanced in what they're saying. But even with this nuance, I don't know if uh, maybe I'll listen to Christian podcasts, maybe I listen to too much. That second option is probably more favorable. Whenever I listen to these brothers or sisters, I just can't help but squirm a little bit, brothers, in what I hear. Even in our own Reformed and Baptistic circles, men who I love and have learned from, they almost inadvertently begin to sound like conservative or even liberal political commentary rather than messengers of Jesus Christ. They end up sounding more like a Ben Shapiro rather than, you know, the Apostle Paul. Or, you know, who's the old school version of... Ah, never mind. I'll let that be. I'm not against preachers speaking on political issues. Far from it. 
especially when political issues are coming into the church and when they're being screened at the church. I have no problem with the pulpit being used and directly talking about politics, particularly in these instances, because they deal with biblical principles. But brothers, it is easy, it is far too easy to confuse one's zeal for the culture war or for policy issues with one's devotion to God's inerrant word. It is so easy to say, you know what, policy issue, culture war, this, this, you know, this, this is a biblical issue, and it is. But oftentimes they don't make that proper divide. I do this because of God's word. That is just some antecedent notion behind it. Brothers, it's very easy while we are in the midst of the storm to get lost in our own preferences or intuitions rather than stand firmly on the word of God. And some days it feels as if we have to choose between Sodom or Gomorrah while hellfire is raining down upon us. Amen? But that's not our calling. Our calling is to know exactly what God has revealed to us in his word, to proclaim that word clearly. And in the areas that he has not explicitly revealed, we use godly and biblical wisdom and principles that he provides for us. That's it. That's our calling. There's a lot in there, but that's it. Bible, 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 and Bible alone. Brothers, know that for many men, even for many public Christians... Following these basic tenets will not be enough. Some will sneer and say that we will do, do or say too little. Others will say that we go beyond the word. But as Ezekiel was taught, God commanded him to speak, Thus says the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. It is therefore our duty, brothers and sisters, to know God's word and to do it despite what sneers or rebellion we may face, whether on our right or on our left. Brothers, we are called to speak God's word and God's word alone. And this brings us to our fourth and final point of the night. The content the content of Ezekiel's message. We have looked at the nature of Ezekiel's call to ministry. We saw the rebellious congregation that he was was called to preach to. And we have seen the Lord's consultation how Ezekiel was to accomplish his task. He was to be fortified in his task. And all that we have seen, Ezekiel seems to be constantly prepared for war and for harsh trials to come. But what Ezekiel was going to preach, but what was Ezekiel going to preach? That God had to so marvelously encourage and empower him for that task. In other words, what what is the content of Ezekiel's message? In verse 8, God commands Ezekiel, son of man, hear what I say to you. This is in contrast to what he would hear from the rebellious people. The Lord continues, be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Ezekiel was not to imitate the people in their rebellion, nor give in to what they wanted to hear. In other words, God is calling Ezekiel not to be a man pleaser, 
God is rather calling Ezekiel to preach only the content that he provides. Nothing outside of what God would reveal to Ezekiel should make it into his message. Not the opinion of his audience, nor Ezekiel's possible capitulation to them. Again, Deuteronomy 18 speaks of the prophet who would act presumptuously to add a word beyond what God had commanded. If Ezekiel spoke outside of what God commanded him, he would be put to death. In verse 9, we see the provision of this command take on a visual form. We read, And when I looked, Ezekiel's beholding this vision, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And notice also that it was Yahweh opening for Ezekiel, that this scroll in verse 10, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. So I think we should envision Ezekiel before the throne room of God receiving the Lord's edict to be announced before the people. Ezekiel is acting as a royal guard, it would seem, preparing for war. And he is receiving the message to proclaim for his king. And so in verse 10, we see the content of God's message. On the scroll, as the text says, there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. This is the character of Ezekiel's initial message. This message was not a message of hope or of restoration that the people were almost expecting. These three words, lamentation, mourning, and woe, these should be read as literary titles. There was the genre of lamentation, the genre of mourning, the genre of woe. So what we can see from this passage is that God has expressed His message of judgment in literary artistry. As we go through the book of Ezekiel, we can see these genres formally introduced by the titles of Lamentation, Mourning, and Woe at various chapter divisions in our English Bibles even, uh, at least up to chapter 24. And as any simple reader can see, Ezekiel's earlier chapters are filled with absolute dread. We will read in vivid detail the horror that God will release upon His rebellious people. And I don't want to spoil it for you, brothers, for what we'll see later. But, so, but I do want to make this note. Notice that Ezekiel, in this passage, was commanded to preach tough subject matter. As we will see, this message is rough, gritty, and downright dark. The content of Ezekiel's message is intended to bring sobriety, sobriety to a people and toxic intoxicated by their own sin. It is only by preaching in stark, sobering terms that conviction over sin takes place. Unless a sober word is preached, conviction and repentance will not come. And this is the message. This is the sobering word that Yahweh Himself is pushing Ezekiel, calling Ezekiel to proclaim. He's telling His people, To wake up. Brothers, the same sobering word for us is needed. We heard this morning of the various issues that face our country, our society, and our communities. I know I've repeated a good bit of this, but it's important. Especially as we think of it in relation to our prophetic task or duty as uh, as Christians. In recent days, it feels as if 
the mighty American empire has fallen. Similar to what these exiles would soon experience with the destruction of the temple. Brothers, we, we, we do not need to merely mourn and pray for our sad state of affairs in this country. We must be the ones to issue this sober word of repentance and conviction. Brothers, our ultimate enemy is not cultural Marxist or radical ideologies from either the right or the left. These are issues that the church must confront. Yes, we agree. Amen. But they are not the ultimate enemy of God's church. Sin, Satan, and this present evil age are the Christian's greatest enemies. For those who delight in reverie over destruction, for those who sow chaos, for those who madden themselves with media, for those who crave controversy, for those who desire to see their fellow man suffer as they prop themselves up with vain idols of money and security, all such men and women have one common source of their sin intoxication. It is their own sin and their king, Satan. Brothers, may we as followers and soldiers of Christ's heavenly kingdom be prepared for war. We have been equipped with God's holy word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's by preaching this word that God converts the souls of men through the sobering word of Christ and his eternal judgment that sinners are saved from their reckless abandon. It's only by confronting an addict with a sobering word that they come out of their stupor. Brothers, not only does the gospel bring sobriety sobriety to a rebellious people, it will also comfort those who are seeking rest and security. Ezekiel's immediate message is one of destruction and repentance, but he does not end there, brothers. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel keeps writing of God's plan of restoration. Ezekiel writes of the new heavens and the new earth under the the dominion of the Davidic Son. And as those who know of Christ, we know that this ultimate rest comes in Him. Oh, brothers, for those who are seeking rest from this wearisome world, for those who wish to find reprieve from the clamor, for those who wish to be strengthened in their weakness, come to Christ. Christ is our rest. He is our salvation. He will strengthen us for this work that He has called us to, and He will enliven us to engage in this continual battle with this world, with our sin, and with Satan, and he, until He calls us home. Brothers and sisters, be bold to speak that word of sobriety to this nation, to your society, to your community, to your family, to your friends. But also, brothers and sisters, preach the word of refreshment and be strengthened by the God who has called you into His kingdom. Yes, you are prepared for war and you are going out against a kingdom of Satan, but you have the kingdom of God Almighty God behind you, preparing you for war and strengthening you. And you have the most powerful weapon of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ.
I conclude with these words of encouragement from our Lord and our King. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. May those who are burdened by their sins and the cares of this world find rest tonight in their submission to King Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are King. That you strengthen us and you empower us to go against a world, against a nation, nations of rebels, even those who are close at home. Lord, we do mourn the sad state of affairs of our nation. But Lord, we delight that we have a heavenly nation in which is being prepared for us in glory. And Lord, with that mere thought of these gospel realities of our Christ seated upon His throne, giving us the charge to proclaim His gospel. Lord, may we do that with power. May we do that with integrity. And Lord, may we do that with sincerity and truth that you would be glorified in all things and that you would be glorified and not ourselves. Lord, may your name, may your name be seated on high. Lord, we ask for your glory to be magnified this evening. And we ask this in your son's holy, holy, holy name. Amen.